Welcome to The Pot of Gold, where we talk all things precious metals and their markets. Today, we discuss gold's strength as geopolitical tensions increase, how markets continue to jump on whispers of rate cuts, even though Federal Reserve Bank officials push back. And we dissect China's recent attempts to mobilise 2 trillion yuan from offshore state-owned enterprises. I am your host, Shay Russell, and joining me today is Nick Frappel, ABC Refinery's Global Head of Institutional Markets. Nick, how are you, mate? Extremely well, thanks. Refreshed after three weeks away and, what, over a a month since our last podcast. Uh, It has. It has been uh, a little over 30 days since our last podcast. Uh, And interestingly, gold did not fall below $2,000 while you were gone. So I'm dying to find out how the technical picture has changed or if it has changed while you've been away. Uh, But first and foremost, I do want to talk about the big picture of gold, and that is why isn't gold falling? Like I know there's a lot of noise in the background about how the Fed's going to decrease rates, but then we've got geopolitical tensions increasing in the background. What is keeping gold elevated right now? Well, there's been pretty good physical demand, and I think that the market is certainly, although it's not um, particularly well positioned in, in terms of the net positioning, and there have been net outflows on both the futures and the gold ETF globally, and I'll, I'll, talk, I'll touch on some of those uh, uh, geopolitical issues um, later, But um, I think the notable thing before we talk about gold is just a sort of a bit of a continuation of what we talked about on the last podcast, which was whether or not the market had got ahead of itself in terms of rate cut expectations through 2024. So the big picture is there has been significant pushback from Fed officials regarding market expectations of declining US rates in 2024. Um, San Francisco Fed Daily talking about rate cuts as premature, and Chicago Fed Austin Goolsby, who's considered to be on the dovish end of the spectrum, commenting on the need to focus on data, naturally enough. Um, he was also quite positive about labor market strength and generally gave the overall impression he's not on the voting uh, committee of the FOMC, but he gave the impression that he was not um, in particularly dovish um, mode. Um, that uh, discussion about labor market strength is actually really, really important because it's possibly the most contentious issue in terms of deciding whether rates will fall as fast as the market uh, thinks. Um, And the generally positive, if you like, or the pushback against this market pricing by the Fed has been helped by data such as US jobless claims help push yields higher we look at what the bond market has done since we last spoke, it's notable that although yield euphoria continued for a couple of weeks after we last spoke, um, taking 10-year yields to a low of about uh, 378, roughly on the 29th of December, yields have risen through January, and they remain in a positive trend technically. 10-year nominals traded about 4.1% now after that low in, uh, in December. Uh, 10-year reals traded about 180 And importantly, I think there's been a substantial drop in the size of bets on rising yields as non-commercials exit what looks like uh, was a really crowded trade. 
Uh, you've mentioned there that there's finally been some pushback from the head and that they're basically putting forward more hawkish expectations than what the market expected a couple of weeks ago. Mm. But tell me, how does this pushback uh, fit in with what's happening with gold in general right now? Because in the past 30 days since our last podcast, there has been an increase in geopolitical tensions. Yeah, there there has, and I'll I'll, I'll get on I'll get on to those. Um, the uh, in just I meant to say as well, uh, just talking about equities, um, you can't ignore the fact that the SPX has raced raced to an all time high, and that is not the outcome that suggests a hard landing is in the minds of equity investors <laughs> and fund managers. Um, whether it's a last hurrah or not, as some people uh, suggest. Um, and again, that turns some degree on you know consumer spending going forward and the labour market. Um, how does it plug into gold? Well, I think if you look at it, the, the reduced expectations for interest rate reductions are arguably less friendly to gold than they were. And if you look at what gold has done, despite rising tensions in the Middle East, that's sort of borne out by the price behavior since the beginning of January, which has marked both falling expectations of rate cuts, 24 and that slight recovery in real rates. And, you know, the stronger performance in U.S. equities probably also explains, uh, helps explain why asset managers have a reduced exposure to gold via the exchange and via ETFs. Um, that's e the drain in ETF holdings have sunk by about 1.67 million ounces since the beginning of December, and actually about one and a quarter million ounces, uh, troy ounces since the new year. And I think that's the sort of context in which you see um, a decline in gross longs, in, uh, in managed money longs in, the, in COMEX, CME, um, and also sort of weakness in the ETF space. Now, on the positive side, uh, it, if you look at the price action, gold is in a positive trend, whether you look at it via a daily or a weekly uh, perspective. And as you know, we always look at it via daily and weekly candles using Ichimoku Clouds. And it has a broadly supportive outlook in the sense that the argument is largely about the degree of policy rate reduction, not whether rate reduction happens at all. Um, so with that in mind, we should probably look at how the CME FedWatch tool has changed over the last month. And the probability that Fed funds target rate would decline by 25 basis points has gone from 76% a month ago, in fact, 77% just a week ago, to 42% yesterday. And the probability that Fed funds will decline by 100 basis points by the 31st of July Fed meeting has gone from about 63% a month ago to 28% today. So that's a really strong reassessment of the degree of, of, uh, of, of sort of cutting that the Fed would undertake. Now, you mentioned geopolitics so eventually <laughs> i'm going to yeah. get around to you, that you get there look i think i unfairly loaded a, a lot at the start of that question not realizing it. <laughs> yeah how much macro there was to cover first yeah that's right that's right and and and, and there's also a reason because um like i said it fa gold faces a positive geopolitical background positive for gold negative you know for everyone else i guess and i don't normally cite geopolitics much because it's a completely subjective metric but it's worth uh, discussing uh, because there's a couple of there's certainly been a you know a continuation if not an increase and uh, in the, you know the perception of geopolitical risk matters and I'm certainly not going to cover the three main areas that uh, people might be concerned about have reasons to be concerned about but I'm just mainly going to focus on um, sort of Red Sea and Iran um, 
it's interesting because you know the houthis can be challenged in the red sea and are being challenged in the red sea and yemen um it still represents or they still represent a challenge to the us and the wider community but to some degree it looks as though perception is more important than the reality because in fact the houthi have done very little actual damage but they do risk ensnaring the west in a largely unwarranted distraction when plenty of other things are going on and if you also look at uh, the houthis sort of principal sponsors iran um they normally project force via proxies such as Hezbollah and the Houthi rebels. Um, they seem to bring conflict significantly closer geographically by bombing the uh, Baluchistan uh, region of Pakistan. And it's probably worth talking about that for a little minute because the people in that region, the Baluch, extend into eastern Iran themselves and southern Afghanistan up into past Helmand province. And they have a generally antagonistic relationship with both the Pakistani government in Islamabad mm -hmm. and the uh, Shia regime or Shia government in Iran. Uh, the region, to go on the Pakistani side, appears to contain a number of little-known anti-Iranian uh, Sunni groups. And when you look at it that way, the it is it, on the on the face of it, it looks like a resurfacing of some long-standing aggravations with these groups rather than a desire on the front part of Iran to engender a direct confrontation between Tehran and its nuclear-capable neighbor, Pakistan. But coming just after missile attacks on Erbil, the capital of Kurdistan, which is the autonomous region of northern Iraq, on the pretext that Mossad was running a center for espionage there, the first impression was a country rapidly ratcheting up and widening the zone of instability and uncertainty. But in substance, the events look more like the settling of local scores by a fairly self-confident regional power rather than the more outwardly directed action taken in southern Lebanon, Hezbollah, and the Red Sea by the Houthi. So in that sense, the, what I'm saying there is that those last bits of news in terms of uh, geopolitics are actually much more localized, I think, in what they're achieving or what's going on rather than the, sort of the Red Sea piece and the Lebanon-Israel uh, piece. Uh, that's an interesting take, Nick, and I do like that as it might be uh, not as distracting for the markets as uh, some of us have thought. But I do want to get your analytical lens to gold price points. Mm. Tell me, uh, what are we starting with? Are we going to start with the Ichimoku cloud or my favourite, the point and figure? Well, I think we're going to start with the point and figure because we're going to start targets first and then sports Amazing. and resistances later. I'm not disappointed by today's conversation. Far away. <laughs> <laughs> so, look, gold has traded pretty narrowly, relatively narrowly, since the 18th of Jan. Uh, and if we look at targets on gold, looking first at the hourly point and figure, which um, in this case has been optimized for fairly recent volatility, there are still some pretty large targets. Not surprisingly, an hourly chart point and figure is still a big thing. Uh, and there are some fairly large targets being generated on both the up and the downside. I haven't listed them all. Without listing all the nearby upside targets, uh, US dollar 2,092 and quite close by US dollar 2,103, 2103. And on the downside, US dollar 1978 and more remotely 1937. And there are other more distant targets, you know, on, on both sides. I'm those assuming- are the ones that the, These are the ones in the next, like on the fortnightly period that we operate on. 
Well, depends if we see a resurgence of volatility, and if the and that of course would be driven by events and data. Um, they might actually because they're quite big targets, um, particularly some of the downside ones like that nineteen thirty seven. And I wouldn't, I would be surprised. And nothing should really surprise you actually in commodities, um, <laughs> especially gold. <laughs> nothing should surprise you. Um, but I would, I, I would think they'd probably be a little bit further than that. But but then in that context of you know one week, two weeks. The shorter-term targets, which I get from one-minute charts, uh, suggest a move on the upside to 2068. And the shorter-term downside targets look to 2005, which, of course, is you know, barely $20 away as we speak, and 1996, um, not very far away. Um, we look at support and resistances. Uh, resistance, very close at 2033. That's sort of worked today and worked recently. And then 2045, US dollar 2045, and those are from the daily turning and standard lines, which I know other people call different things. It's, uh, they're, you know, conversion lines and so on. Um, so uh, support, um, I got support like in the very short term, 2020, it's really close. And in the 1990s, uh, which it sort of intercepts with some of those uh, nearby targets on the one minute uh, chart. And then just looking at, Sort of taking perhaps a sideways step into what uh, you know a little bit, very little bit, a light touch on what the option market is um, telling us is that if you look at the uh, risk reversal for gold um, for one month and one year, uh, still bid for calls has been for quite a while, um, and that means on balance the option market is willing to pay a little bit more for upside, and directionally that implies a more bullish out uh, bullish take than a bearish take. Um, now, for context, if you look at the one month 25 delta risk reversal, that extra bid has dropped a fair bit, though. It was just over three vol, about three vol on the 1st of December, and it's about 75 basis points now. Um, if you look at the one year 25 delta risky, calls a bid 2.4 vol over, according to trustee Bloomberg. Um, that's a less bullish look than early December, where the the bid was went 3.3 vol over, but that was you know around about the time we had that big spike higher. But in oversimplified terms, that is the market view on the likelihood of relative outcomes, and that's a, a, a preference for a more bullish outcome. Um, and it's slightly, if I look, look at an average of where the um, calls a bit over, that's just slightly more uh, uh, bullish than the average of the last couple of years. So you know, it's um, so certainly that's the 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 relative. Um, outlook coming very simplistically via option risk reversals. Um, I want to step back just a smidge before you got to the options. Mm. You've put out the downside targets that you've put out are much higher than they look to be making higher lows, essentially. Aside from gold's uh, significant sell-off in October last year or yeah. down into the 1820s, uh, this is sounds like it's a very bullish setup for gold right now. Yeah, that's that's a good point. You know, that if you look at what the the downside targets are, then there's not really anything dramatic. Sometimes you look at um, big downside targets, and you know they are they are pretty notable compared to where perhaps the spot price is now. Whereas, you know, it might be ugly if you're a committed bull and loaded up <laughs> to that effect. Um, if the price dropped to say 1937, but I think that if you'd step back and look at it, you would say that that is a case of 
higher highs and um and and support that comes in uh you know sort of fairly 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 sort of uh fairly fairly high there's plenty of support on the on on the weekly for example uh down to say the 1950 level uh and sort of around that level i would expect a, a lot of a lot of technical support and that wouldn't really it, that shouldn't be sort of a major concern in the context of a, of a secular sort of bull run or a secular rising market so yeah no i completely agree with that all right uh moving on before we run out of time today we are going to come to Look, it, it definitely ties for ties with the Fed for second place with one of our favourite things to talk about, and that is China, the economy that wobbles but just won't topple. Now, over the past, I think, 48 hours in the lead up to making this podcast today, uh, China's come out with an unusual kind of stimulus package, which arguably is more about repatriating funds back into the Chinese economy than offering any meaningful support for anybody within China. Uh, tell me, Nick, what is your read on Chinese equity market right now? And has the property market stalled since we last spoke? Or is it showing signs of life even? Maybe it's on the up. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of answer that in, 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 in a sort of reverse sense, which is, as uh, someone uh, said um, yeah, a week or two ago, that you know the biggest uh, surprise trade uh, in 24 might be an unexpected degree of China recovery. Um, and then, of course, there's always scope for that, but that's not really what I'm going to say in the next uh, the next few lines. Um, yeah, look, I mean, China's equity markets and the property market do continue to weaken, and there is a lot of talk around stimulus, uh, and a lot of the language uh, reads as mulling over or considering the different package stimulus package options, and that has a feel of people that are floating different ideas uh, to see. Uh, different proposals if and to see how they are received more widely. And this talk of the two trillion yuan stimulus package is about 280 billion US dollars, give or take, uh, which seems largely directed to supporting the equity market, which I think some people have said, you know, not not unreasonably, uh, that it's to um, help with uh, shore up a sort of potentially dangerous wealth wealth effect. Um, you know, the 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 broad take I would without going into the details of the exact plan or the exact package, the broad take I would say about this is that I don't, I'm not getting signs of significant reform or a policy pivot towards consumption. Um, and the reason why that's important is because the model that has been in place for many, many, many years is overinvested whether it's in property or whether it's in other capital uh, in investments. And it's not really working anymore. It's in fact, it's overdone. And so there needs to be a pivot to something new in order to move to another uh, you know, sustainable form of, of, of growth plan for or growth model for China. And if you underpinned um, stronger Chinese consumption, you know, various things would have to happen for that to work. Um, and you'd, you'd, you'd effectively need a shift towards stronger uh, social transfers, um, and, you know, so that would enable kind of oversaving by uh, Chinese households to pivot towards consumption and replace or take up the slack from um, from the from the kind of overinvesting sort of model that they've got at the moment, which is really really played out massively, and you know, 
may well sort of contain the seeds of of a pronounced or deflation, for example, you know the kind of what, what you know what some people call the Japanification kind of problem. Um, now, talking about you know switching pivoting to consumption, it may sound like a really long term solution to a twenty twenty four problem, or frankly a twenty twenty four, twenty twenty three, twenty twenty one, nineteen, eighteen problem. But it is really a strong part of what needs to be addressed in order to move away from the problems of today. So what does that mean for gold? Um, well, the Chinese collectively are notable consumers of gold, although not the highest on a per capita basis, but they're pretty high. A move towards greater household consumption would surely benefit gold, especially in an environment where other spending, for example, on housing costs was um, less important or had become kind of recessed. And talking of housing, again, without going into huge detail, there are bound to be positive inferences drawn from any and all policy actions taken to support the wider Chinese economy. However, if you think the psychology behind the housing market was in a speculative phase that relied on thinking that the next buyer would pay more than you did, um, then much policy is likely to have a, a marginal effect at best, not a transformative impact. because. No government can really incentivize you enough to catch falling knife. Do you know, on that statement, I'm tempted to just leave the podcast there. Uh, however, <laughs> to, uh, however, to kick off our first podcast and series four, I think now, mm. of the Pot of Gold, I'd yeah. actually like you to form the closing summary of the first Pot of Gold for 2024. Yeah. Um, look, I guess probably my summary was along the lines of, you know, what risks might um, emerge and, you know, of course, the risks are the, the real risks, are the ones you never really even see or talk about. Um, but, you know, the, I think a fairly understandable risk is that inflation is more persistent than expected, even though it's you know, done really well to come down. So, or, you know, I, I know the PC and, and so on, the Fed looks at as uh, really dropped pretty hard. And rates don't drop as fast and as far as markets have priced in, leading to, um, well, Tighter, tighter conditions, high US dollar, high US dollar would be a headwind for gold. Um, or that looking at it through a different way is to say that, you know, yes, inflation really did come down, but the Fed made a policy error and kept the foot on the brake or, you know, too tight for too long. Um, but just going with that dollar comment, which is rates related, either which whatever leads to that. If you look at the cycle for the dollar index, which is about a 39 minute month cycle, very roughly speaking, I'd expect the current cycle to kind of bottom out. And that doesn't mean it's going lower. It just means that it's a kind of inflection point somewhere in the May-July period. And if rates do remain higher, then the fresh cycle could provide a uh, background to a stronger, stronger dollar. And especially, you know, there's, if other things come together, like the US equities end at their extraordinary run, which I'm not commenting on either way. I'm just mentioning that there's an inverse relationship there with the broad dollar and, and U.S. equities. If all of that came together, you could have a year with a, um, tighter conditions and stronger dollar than perhaps people had anticipated last year, and that might end with a, a head for, win for gold, but it would have outcomes for all kinds of other assets. The one thing I didn't talk about, and I'm not going to talk about it now because it's really, <laughs> But you're just going to tease us just a little but bit. But I'm just saying <laughs> is that we didn't talk about the BOJ's decision to keep uh, things policy the same. So now people's expectations have switched to April. And again, given what I just said about the dollar cycle, May, July, that's an interesting, uh, you know, 
time sort of uh, intersection, if you like. So, but maybe we can talk about the BOJ next time. Um, look, and the, my last summary is just right now is gold is in a positive trend, like I said, in both daily and weekly timeframes. Um, and it just looks like with a fairly narrow range compared to the volatility we saw in December, um, it looks like the market's really likely guiding for data to guide it, particularly via what's going on in the rates market. So that is my brief summary. I really appreciate your brief summary. And also, too, I'm just going to let everybody know you heard it here first. Nick has had the habit the past two years now of at least publicly being very forward-looking, and I'm sure privately he's been far more forward-looking than we realise. Uh, I look forward to this higher, uh, stronger tightening, higher US dollar environment that you have predicted may eventuate during 2024 because that would be quite contrary to popular belief right now. Well. It, as long as it doesn't create a a problem somewhere else, you know, in uh, in um, you know whatever. But is there something else that uh, you noticed uh, um, a couple of weeks ago, which was a big surprise to the both of us? There Just for those who are listening is. in, wondering whether their time is well spent. Yes. Oh, yes. Their time is definitely well spent. But we know it's because of you, not me, Nick. Uh, for everybody <laughs> listening, uh, Feedspot. I didn't even know they knew this little pot of gold existed. But it turns out globally, uh, we were ranked, and I'm notice I'm including me now. We were ranked <laughs> as the fifth um, podcast, as you absolutely should listen to when it comes to gold. So, and this was like the top fifteen. There were fifteen gold po uh, podcasts ranked, and we came in at number five, which we were in good, good company in that podcast um, podcast list, Nick. We 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 are, and we were. And and the only thing is, just in case people listen in and say hang on, you said fifth, is that I just refreshed it today and it says sixth. So it's clearly a very volatile data series. Ooh. Like oh, way to crush me. <laughs> I was like, we were top five. Okay, you know what? Top 10. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? Five, six, we're happy. Um, but yeah, this year is going to be interesting and we, we might look at, uh, or we might look at, I don't know, uh, and ask me anything, an AMA or. We've um, been trying to set know. up an AMA for a while, actually. It comes down to a little bit of infrastructure at our end, although people yeah. can leave comments on the Spotify podcast where they listen to it. Mm. Um, if you are subscribed to uh, Nick's emails, your monthly technical analysis chart, which there are details at the end of this podcast on how to access, you could probably reply to that address and we'd be able to find it. Um, but we will get to an AMA this year. Nonetheless, we are the fifth or sixth best gold podcast in the globe right now, and that's what matters. Uh, Nick, this has been a cracking episode to kick off 2024. Some big macro themes. Uh, gold, while we have a great positive setup at the start of the year, may face uh, headwinds later this year. But what I've got to say is thank you for being here. It's great to have you back on the mic. And you too, Shay. Wonderful to be back. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to get a better understanding of the technical indicator Nick uses, the Ichimoku Cloud. It's available on most trading platforms. Alternatively, you can check the show notes over at abcrefinery.com forward slash podcast. Here you can sign up to receive more information from Nick Frappel, including his monthly report where he incorporates technical analysis alongside macro market commentary. That's all from us today at ABC Refinery. We look forward to seeing you next time. <laughs>